It's episode nine of The Boost with Michael Fulweiler, brand marketing lead at Herd and author of the weekly newsletter, Therapy Marketer. Let's go. All right, welcome to The Boost, conversations with people promoting mental health and uh, really couldn't have picked a better guest, although he kind of picked us. Um, Notice what we we're doing with the boost and uh, so honored, actually, that he raised his hand. So this is Michael Fulweiler, the brand marketing lead at Herd, which is a online back office platform built for mental health professionals and therapists to get all their accounting, all their financials under the hood in one place, which provides a huge efficiency and lets clinicians and providers do what they do best, work at the top of their licensure and, and just be more efficient as business people, which is one of their hats. So um, Michael is also the founder of Fullweiler Media. Um, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the email newsletter he runs, which is a real powerhouse resource. Um, but Michael, it's really great to have you on today. How are you? Good. I'm good. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for letting me invite myself on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm happy to have you on. Um, you know, I see you a lot on LinkedIn and you're also really strong on Twitter. I think you have something close to 21, 22,000 followers there. And then um, it's a it's a horse race between you and me on LinkedIn. I think we're both nearing <laughs> 7,000. You didn't know it was a race. I, I didn't know, but now I do. Oh man, I've showed my hand. Uh, but yeah, we should uh, we should set up some kind of contest to ten thousand. Not that it's all about quantity, but man, it's been a great platform. So I want to talk about that with you. Uh, so many things. You know, you were a speaker at the mental health marketing conference last year. I'd love to talk a little bit about your experience there. Um, but before we jump in, as we always do, we're going to start with the virtual hug and the shameless plug. So. This is what we do with all our guests. And if this is your first episode, uh, we'll start one at a time. So the, vir the virtual hug is, uh, Michael, just tell us somebody or something you're thankful for today. Such a great question. Before I jump into that, I just want to acknowledge for anyone who's listening to the audio and not watching the video that Steve and I are wearing matching black t-shirts, which we did not coordinate. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Love, love your look. Oh, yeah. Um, and and just to pile on there, uh, we both have beards happening. And Michael, I think you've you've made more than one comment on the beard. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's that there's that quote, uh, you know, you build your house and then your house builds you. But you you grow your beard and then the beard grows you, I think, from a brand perspective. So be careful. I don't know. Once you once you go there, it's hard to it's hard to leave it. Yeah, ever since I've known you, you've had this big beard and then you shaved it off. And it's so funny how when men shave their beard, they look like a totally different person. I know personally, like if I was to sh clean shave, I'd look 12 years old and like unrecognizable. <laughs> yeah, um, that was it. I did look like a child and it yeah. was totally out of sync with all of my, like, especially I'm, I'm busiest on LinkedIn. And so then I looked like a different person. Uh, and it's always confusing. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, back to your, back to your question. Someone that I'm grateful for, well, grateful for you for, you know, for having me on and, um, you know, for building this platform for folks to talk about mental health. Um, you know, I, I think I, I need to go with my partner. Um, my fiance, we're getting married in September 
and just feeling really grateful for her in this season of life. And, you know, through the wedding planning process, just uh, really, really enjoying that and, you know, excited for, for the wedding coming up and to have all of our friends and family together. Yeah. Where's the wedding taking place? We are, uh, so we live in Providence, Rhode Island, and we're getting married in a town called Seekonk, which is in Massachusetts, just across the, the state line. You don't have to go far in Rhode Island to, to go out of state, uh, but we're getting married in Massachusetts on a farm. Nice. Yeah, it's impossible to go far in Rhode Island. and, and uh... I think you can drive across the, the entire state in an hour. Which, really? You know, I'm, I'm from Seattle originally, so it's a little bit more wide open out there. Ooh, I love Seattle too. I've never been to Rhode Island. That's that's a place I need to get to. Uh, I hear I hear great things. So yeah, congratulations on the upcoming wedding. And then I think because of your honeymoon, you're going to miss the conference this year entirely. And I am. I, I'm sad about that. And you almost yeah, missed I'm it last. That, well, I'm upset you didn't plan around me. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I did almost miss it last year. Um, we should talk about that. <laughs> yeah, let's start there. So, uh, yeah, you were you were a presenter last year. I was really stoked that that you were coming to the conference, and then uh, the tra like there was a travel snafu, right? I think it was. I don't know if it was weather or just flight delays in in twenty twenty two. But yeah, what happened there? Well, to back up, um, you know, I had initially filled out the speaker request form on your website probably four years ago, three or four years ago, um, because I had just started my business as a you know mental health marketing company. So of course, the first thing I did was go on Google and search mental health marketing just to, <laughs> to, to see what was out there. And I found you know the mental health marketing conference and I thought, wow, this sounds amazing. And so filled out the form and didn't really think anything of it and honestly forgot about it and probably I don't know, six months later, I got an email from you and we jumped on a call and you had invited me to, to speak, which was really amazing. And this was, I think, 2020, 2021. And so, um, you know, the, the conference was planned in, in Nashville, I believe. And then because of COVID, it was, you know, we kind of kept getting pushed back and pushed back and finally made the call to, to reschedule. And so there was all of this lead up, you know, it felt like two years in the making. Um, and I was supposed to speak on day one and for whatever reason, I booked an indirect flight. I think it was the only flight I could get out of Providence. I went through LaGuardia and of course my flight from Providence to LaGuardia was delayed. So I missed my connection in LaGuardia. I ended up having to spend the night <laughs> in the airport and I remember texting you, letting you know, like, Hey, I don't think I'm going to make it. Um, and so you were gracious enough to change the, the order of speakers. And, you know, I, I finally made it, it was like a 36 hour journey, um, to go like, you know, what should have been a four hour flight, uh, but showed up, uh, <laughs> was able to speak and, you know, really, really had a blast. Well, it felt like two years because it was two years. And I forgot about that, that we had you booked in 2021. And then, yeah, we, after we did a 2020 conference, which was, which was fully virtual, total, total COVID pivot, then we were working on a hybrid event. And 
And we were sort of between two horses for a number of reasons. And so, man, I'm so glad you stuck with us. And I'm so glad my approach came off as gracious because internally it was, it was so greedy to be like, oh man, I, I, I really have to do everything to make sure that, you know, Michael doesn't cancel unless it's best for him. You know, of course I wanted you to take care of yourself. That was in the message thread. And at the same time, I was like, I will switch everything around. Like, let's just like try to figure out a solution to make this work. And it did work. And I'm so, so grateful for that. Um, so we'll have to, we'll have to try again in 2024, uh, maybe when you're, you're happily married and all settled in. But, um, yeah, that's a great, that's great. <laughs> I just remember that panic in my panic in my event planner mode, uh, the day of, but that you, ho you just have to be ready for that stuff. Like there are, there are no promises in, in the conference space. Um, so yeah, so I want to jump in you, every, I think almost every guest so far has talked about AI and that's the super shiny thing. And I don't, necessarily want to talk about AI. I want to talk about um, the opposite sort of of AI. And I've I've worked at an email marketing kind of SaaS based provider. I know you're at an online um, technology company now. Um, and back then, this was, you know, a decade more ago, e email was pretty sexy for a while. And then it kind of turned into more of a commodity. And then Seth Godin wrote this post in 2021. I'm sorry, 2011 that said, you know, uh, bring me the stuff that's dead, please. Because email at that time was, it was kind of like uh, popular to say email's dead. Um, but here you are, 2023, uh, a powerhouse list. I think you've cleared 3,000 uh, therapists and other followers uh, on your list. And I've watched that trajectory just go up and to the right for the past year, as especially since I've known you well. And um, and I want to start there with email because yeah, it's not it's not Instagram, it's not TikTok, it's not the the um, you know the flashiest technorati thing. But talk about email and and how you're using it and what it's maybe um, what you're seeing it do for your business and and your goals. I'm a huge proponent of email and email marketing and. <clears throat> You know, the marketing world, we refer to your your email list as your owned audience, right? Because you have a direct relationship with them. You can contact them. You have access to their inbox, right? Versus if you're building an audience on social media, we refer to that as a borrowed audience, right? Like you're building on <clears throat> borrowed land. I remember being at the Gottman Institute early in my career, and this was 2008, you know, 2009. And so Facebook was, you know, all the rage. And I remember investing years building an audience on Facebook. I remember getting to 100,000 likes on our Facebook page and that being such a big deal. I remember we got like a cake in the office to, <laughs> to celebrate 100K. Yeah. And then like, I just remember it felt like overnight, like Facebook just died and it became a pay to play platform. People were leaving Facebook. Um, and so I just remember feeling like, man, like I spent, we spent so much time as a brand and organization building here. Um, and you know, your brand has to evolve over time. Right. And so at Gottman, we were able to then 
build on Instagram and in other channels. But I think you're at such like the mercy of the algorithm when you build on on social. Um, social is still a great channel to you know to build an audience, but it's really key to move your audience from an from a kind of a borrowed audience to an owned audience. Mm -hmm. And so you know at Gottman email was our highest revenue generating channel it continues today uh, at herd you know one of the first things I did was to build out our our newsletter and you know similar to the newsletter that I write therapy marketer it goes out every week you know it's not something that's going to like exponentially grow all at once it's a long-term investment and you know something that I'll say about email, as a channel is that it rewards consistency. Mm. I think that I've seen a lot of newsletters have over time come and go, but the ones who are successful are the ones who are consistent. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, th therapists will tell me today, oh, I love your Tuesday newsletter. <laughs> and it's because it goes out every Tuesday. It's in their inbox every Tuesday morning. They just know that it's going to be there and they look forward to it. And it's not even, oh, I love therapy marketer. I, I love your Tuesday newsletter. Right? And it just becomes synonymous with Tuesday. So I think there's something to be said there about, you know, being consistent and sticking with it, even if you're not seeing um, kind of growth and results right away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. You are the chief marketing officer at the Gottman Institute. And uh, yeah, to have 100,000 likes or, you know, followers, that's that's amazing. Um, you've got you've got 22, close to 22,000 followers on on Twitter. But kind of before we we jump um, media or channels, uh, talk a little bit about your content creation strategy. How are you filling up um, Therapy Marketer week over week with compelling content? And then also maybe second, once you once you kind of cover content, let's talk about, uh, you know, acquisition, you know, opt in acquisition. And yeah, I'm a big fan of opt in generally speaking, and a, a big fan of consistency, um, you know, could learn, could learn a, a thing or two more about that, of course, you know, trying to do my own marketing. But how, how do you create your content, especially for your newsletter, your Tuesday newsletter? And then um, how are you going about finding new followers for that channel specifically? So my strategy with my newsletter, Therapy Marketer, is for every newsletter to have one takeaway that is practical that someone can read and they can apply it in their business. And I get feedback about that, that I love how concise your newsletter is. I know I love like how everyone has like something that I can take away. It gives me something to think about. And that's by design. I think, you know, historically newsletters were really like long, emails that no one reads. Yeah. Right. And I remember being at the Gottman Institute again, like this was 2008, 2009 and the skim was becoming popular and the skim was really cool because what the skim did is it took the, the news and just distilled it down into really kind of short form content that you could skim. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, what if we took this model and applied it to marriage and relationships. Like basically what if we created the skim for your marriage where, you know, 
twice a week. I think the skin was a daily newsletter at the time. Um, you know, twice a week, you'd get an email from the Gottman Institute in your inbox. It just had like one thing that you could apply in your relationship. And that was hugely successful. People loved it. You know, I'd be at conferences and people would walk up to me and say, I love your newsletter. <laughs> like, mm. You know, it's so amazing. And so, you know, I've tried to take that same approach to my own newsletter now at, at Therapy Marketer. And so it's really like a focus on value, right? I think people can see through the the fluff, right? And so just like really valuable, practical ideas. And I borrow ideas from others, citing them, of course, like what is kind of inspiring me at the time. Maybe I read something on LinkedIn that I like, and maybe it's not even about, it's, you know, marketing related, but it's not about mental health or it's not even for therapists, but I can apply it and put it within context for therapists. And so I do that a lot. Sometimes like I'll talk about something that I see, you know, like I remember <laughs> I wrote a recent newsletter about a flyer for a therapy practice that I saw in a coffee shop. I was like, wow, this is like such a great idea. So I just like took a picture and then I wrote a newsletter about it. And so I think there's really inspiration from everywhere. I also get a lot of inspiration from conversations that I have with therapists. And so the, the consulting work that I do with therapists, um, I get a lot of ideas just from questions that therapists ask me, you know, challenges that they're having. I will take notes, but like, oh, this is a great newsletter topic. <laughs> so yeah. I think there's, um, you know, there's kind of a never ending supply of ideas for content. And I think it comes back to what is going to be useful for your target audience? You know, what are the questions that they have? What are the challenges that they're having? Hmm. It's so eloquently distilled when you say it, because it could be, it could be so overwhelming. Like even if you just try to tackle email marketing, but for you to say, you know, I try to provide value. I try to be thoughtful about somebody's time in the inbox and, and yes, borrow and steal the best models. Um, I'm happy to hear you do that. I have a little bit of guilt sometimes about doing that, but that's how we're all getting better. And you also do this thing where, at least on LinkedIn and maybe other channels too, you, on Monday, you just do a simple invitation for, hey, you know, the next the next therapy marketer is going out tomorrow, 3,000 people follow it, uh, which provides that social um, credibility and it tells the audience if they should maybe be part of that audience based on who they are, it lets them self-select. And as we look for things to share on social media, that's such a great one. And I've, I notice it almost, I feel like just about every time. And I think every time, oh, that's so smart just to, you know, it doesn't need to be every day. You don't need to pound, pound the desk with, uh, you know, join our newsletter. But again, to your point about consistency, and then, and then once you get your welcome email, that thing is so thoughtful uh, and valuable. Talk a little bit about that first impression. I think that for an email newsletter, the welcome email is, is very underrated, right? Because when you sign up for a newsletter, you're going to get some sort of confirmation or welcome email. And that's when you're like most engaged and most interested, right? Mm. And so that's when I have your attention. And what most people do is they just use the default MailChimp or ConvertKit or, you know, whatever tool they're using, you know, thank you for subscribing and, and that's it. 
right? But you have an opportunity. Like my welcome email has like an 80%, 85% average open rate, which is like unheard of for, for email, right? And so I have your attention, like take advantage of that, you know, use it. Mm-hmm. And so what I send in my welcome email is sort of like, <laughs> here's like your first tip on how to send a welcome email, which is a little bit meta, right? But it's still delivering delivering value. Um, and as part of the welcome email, you know, just setting expectations for people, letting them know when they're going to hear from you, what you're going to be talking about. And then if there's a call to action, like maybe there, that's an opportunity to plug you know, if you have, uh, if you have services, maybe a consultation call about your services, maybe there's a free download, maybe there's a video, maybe it's, Hey, here's like our three most popular articles that we've written. Just like give people something to take that next step. Mm-hmm. You never want to create a dead end, right? Like give, give people the opportunity if they're interested to continue to engage with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm noting that just never create a dead end. Uh, that's great. And yeah, I mean, if it's meta, it's meta, but, uh, it's so useful. It's oftentimes such a big miss, the welcome email, especially because yeah, I just signed up. I'm super engaged. Do you do, do you require a double opt-in? I forget. Uh, I don't, um, I personally feel like it creates extra friction, right? It's like, if you have someone opt in and then I think convert, convert kit by default does not do it. Um, it also, it's, it hasn't been a problem for me. I know, you know, I've heard some people who don't do that, like end up with a bunch of spam emails. And um, so it's something that I monitor for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I think I've got that going on, but it does provide a, just another wall to jump over when, yeah, for the most part, for somebody of my scale, yeah, it's probably something I can just hand, hand pick and clean every once in a while. Um, all right, so so that's email marketing, uh, which you're rocking at. Let's go to Twitter, and another another old school channel um, that's that's providing results. And first, kind of level set for us. Were you an early adopter of Twitter, or how did how did you initially get on that channel? I've had I've had Twitter for a long time. I think it says like on your profile in your bio when you, you know, first joined. And I think I probably joined Twitter 10 years ago, but for the first nine years of being on Twitter, I was, you know, someone who followed like sports accounts and news accounts. And I really just sort of used it for, for that purpose. I wasn't someone who really tweeted or, you know, or posted or was really someone who was active on the channel. And I remember when I started my newsletter. It's like two years ago. Now, um, I decided I, you know, I wanted to start this newsletter. It was going to be marketing focused for therapists. I shared it with all the therapists that I knew, which was like at the time, like 150 people signed up for it. And I just thought in my mind, like, I'm going to write this really great newsletter and it's just going to spread through word of mouth. Therapists are going to forward it to their friends. It's going to, it's going to take off. For like the first six months, I think it was pretty flat. <laughs> and I think I knew everyone who was on my list. And so yeah, yeah. I kind of had to go back to the drawing board and figure out, okay, like if I'm going to be serious about this newsletter, I'm going to commit to it. I need to figure out like how to distribute it and how to grow it. And social media is the obvious, you know, 
answer, right? And so then the question was, which channel do I want to focus on? Um, and I looked at Twitter, I looked at LinkedIn, I looked at Instagram, I looked at even TikTok. And for me, Twitter felt like the least amount of work in terms of content creation, because it's text-based. Uh, going back to being concise, like I'm someone who is very big on brevity. And so I think I really enjoy that aspect of Twitter. It almost forces you to like <laughs> be concise in your yeah. thoughts and ideas because yeah. there's a character limit. And so I think for that reason, it's just like a good fit for me. And I'm also, I'm a writer. I, uh, my degree is in English literature. And so kind of like by default, I, I enjoy to write. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to pick Twitter and we're just going to see how this goes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I remember like getting on Twitter and I was tweeting, it's getting like zero engagement. I felt like just, I was posting into the void and it wasn't really working. And so what I, what I did was I identified therapists on Twitter who had large followings, not huge followings, but 5,000, 10,000 followers. And I reached out to them. I DM them, just introduced myself, uh, asked if they wanted to jump on a call and just started to build relationships with folks mm -hmm. and really made friends that I have till this day. And by engaging with those people, they started engaging with my stuff. They started sharing my posts. I was sharing their posts. I was responding. And the nature of Twitter is that it's very kind of conversational. Um, and just through those relationships, I was able kind of to build my own following on that channel. And it's, it's, I mean, pretty wild. Like you, you mentioned, I have over, you know, 20,000 followers there now. Um, and it's, it's really just from kind of building relationships and engaging with the community there. Mm -hmm. So, so some of that was actually, uh, of course, social media, but some of that was one-to-one -one relationship building and kind of that, that belly to belly, you know, phone call, the, the one-to-one -one conversation that actually, I noticed that in, in this conference I'm, I'm building and growing. And it's funny, you mentioned you had 150, you know, people for a long time. Uh, I wasn't involved with it at the time, but the founder of the conference, uh, you know, had had sort of some experiences that led him to start this conversation in Nashville. And maybe a week or two before the first conference was supposed to happen, I think he says like 12 or 20 people were, sh were signed up and they were mostly his friends and family. <laughs> and he thought, oh, I've just totally failed. But there is that there's that acorn season to things, you know, if you're trying to grow oak trees and it's mm -hmm. cool that you sat back and you thought, okay, I got to, I got to retool this. You know, I think I have something great content wise, but you can't just build that, you know, in, in, in the forest and expect anybody to hear it. You have to really, um, think about distribution and think about what are the right channels and where people are. And that's a brilliant strategy to go after some midsize or large accounts and just make introductions. And then, you know, you're planting new seeds there and then see what happens. Um, there's this, I think she's, I think she calls herself a holistic psychologist on Twitter, Dr. Nicole LaPera, if I said her name right. Do you know her? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think she's got, 
maybe 6 million followers or something. It's just hyper growth. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. She, I know she has a big following on Instagram specifically. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, you, you read all these like hacks, right. About like how to hack your growth on social media. And I don't really buy into that stuff. I think it's really at the end of the day, social media is about people and relationships and, you know, connection. And I think the more relationships you build, the more success that you're going to have. I think those things compound as well, right? Because you build a relationship with someone, then they start to share your stuff with their communities. And I think it's also about finding connectors. Um, You know, you'll hear the, like the, the analogy of like a, a hub and a spoke, right? And so it's like finding those hubs that have spokes out to different communities. And if you can find those connectors, then you're going to access, you know, people you maybe wouldn't have had access to. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also, you know, as I've said, it's, it's an investment. I don't think that, you know, you should expect for, for it to happen quickly, whether it's building a newsletter, trying to build, you know, your audience on social media, or even building a conference, right? Like you've, you've been through the process, you know, like the first year, it's, you know, it's going to be tough and then it grows and then the next year it grows. But I, I think it also starts to compound mm-hmm. over time and I'm starting to see the beginning of that. And that's really exciting, right? Like with my newsletter now, I'm like almost three years in and it's like, it's kind of was like this for a while and it was kind of flat and then started to grow. And then it's like, it starts to go up and um, it's just like the, the value of, you know, compound interest over time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just that. The difference between 100% and 101%, you know, compounded over years. It's one of those magical formulas we almost can't comprehend in our brain how how logarithmic it can go over time when you start to stack pennies, uh, so to speak, even if that's, you know, followers or whatever your goals or metrics are. Okay, so, so you've got email lockdown, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Is there, an, is there another channel maybe a more nascent channel that you're, you're thinking about. Um, you know, we have for this year's conference, we have Austin Armstrong coming back. He, he spoke about TikTok last year and, you know, I saw people who attended start to do vertical videos. Um, I did one the other day about mental health awareness month and it did really well. You know, it's not something I'm maybe naturally wired to do all the time. Although here I have a a video podcast, (laughs) you know, video conversation. So maybe I just don't know myself yet. But um, are you are you dipping your toe into like vertical video or anything like that? Or what's your take on uh, where that's going? It's funny, we were talking about this before we hit record. And I was complimenting you on the value of podcasting, especially if you're recording video, because there's so much opportunity for repurposing, right? Like you can take this recording, you know, which is, can be published as an audio only podcast. You can take the video and put it on YouTube. You can cut the video up and create clips. You can write up a summary of this podcast and publish it as a blog post. You can send it out as a newsletter, right? (laughs) So, you know, there's, there's a lot of opportunity to repurpose podcast content as video, which I think is, is really smart. Um, for me personally, I think like there's something about 
creating video content that just feels like you have to be a lot more vulnerable because you're putting your face out there. <laughs> and I think it's like, it's easier to, for me at least to like write on Twitter and through email. Um, but I think that's something that, you know, I've been thinking about investing in, and that's probably the next thing that I'd like to be doing. I think the, the challenge too, with video is the, like the editing and the production. And with that said, I think there's tools now that make it a lot easier than people probably think myself included. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There was a learning curve for me. I had to think about the tech and I copied some people, you know, we're using Riverside FM to record and then we throw it over to Descript, which gives us an AI generated transcript, which is pretty good. Uh, you know, once in a while it, you have to go clean it up, of course, but that's to be expected. Um, and then there's so, so many opportunities beyond that. I saw an idea the other day where somebody said, well, just take that AI transcript, which is great on its own because some people want to read it just from an accessibility standpoint. Some people just want to listen and then some people want to watch and you give everybody all the options, but you can even take a transcript and, you know, throw portions of that into chat GPT, let's say, and it'll, it'll give you a synopsis out that, you know, you could turn into a blog post and I tried it the other day and my transcripts were a little too long, you know, 40 or 50 minutes of conversation is quite a bit for chat GBT to chew on. So it said, Hey, could you make this a little smaller? Um, but you're right. Like the, the little 10 to 15 second sound bites, you know, like I could easily take never create a dead end, uh, you know, and have that be, you know, a takeaway for a little, little video post that we could share out. There's so many opportunities um, and then you can turn it into long form blog content on your website, which, you know, the search engines are going to love hearing us talk about therapists and how to, you know, how to help them with their accounting and how to help them with their marketing and, and, and Twitter and, and LinkedIn, all these keywords that, you know, somebody on, you know, on Google is going to be looking for, and Google's looking for that content to serve up. Yeah. I, I think a mistake that a lot of people make is they spend a lot of time and energy and content creation and they don't spend enough time in content distribution. And I'm always thinking about like, how can I repurpose this piece of content? Like what else can I do with it? Um, and I think a lot of people just leave, you know, value on, on the table with, with their content. Hmm. Something yeah. that I've started to do on LinkedIn is, you know, I, tweet pretty regularly, you know, I, I try not to go <laughs> overboard, like maybe once or twice a day. And, you know, the tweets that are really high performing, that get a lot of engagement, I'll just take that and I'll post it on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. And those posts generally do really well on LinkedIn because I've already validated that, that idea or that messaging or that wording is going to resonate with people. And it's not always one-to-one, -one, right? Because my audience on Twitter is going to be different than my audience on LinkedIn. But like, I feel pretty confident that if something is, you know, performing well on Twitter, then it's going to perform well on LinkedIn as well. And so, um, that's like just another idea for, for LinkedIn content is just taking posts that perform well and on other channels. And you see that on Instagram as well. Like you see sc screenshots of tweets. I know like, <laughs> Uh, Adam Grant is a great example, um, has, has a big audience. His Instagram is just screenshots of his tweets. 
Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, think about a content strategy, right? Like it's pretty simple. Um, it's not over-engineered and it works really well for him. Yeah. I, do you do much with the carousel? I love a good uh, tweet screen grab carousel on LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, <laughs> something that I uh, showed someone recently and they didn't realize is that in order to post a carousel on LinkedIn, you have to upload a PDF because if you just upload images, it sort of is like post as a grid and then you can't like scroll through it. And so if you've seen those carousels on LinkedIn and you're wondering, you know, how do I do that? You have to save your images as, as PDFs and then it uploads it that way. So it's almost more of like a document you can swipe through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can throw it into Canva or something like that with a little square and then just export it as a PDF. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kind of surprising. LinkedIn hasn't fixed that. There's a, there's a few things, you know, if you spend a, enough time on any platform, you start to become sort of research and development for the platform. But that's, that's one of them is the, the carousel via JPEG. And then the other one is the, the stock, uh, uh, image templates, you know, you there's really almost no flexibility with how your images show up or how you can frame them. That's always something I'm, I don't know, I'm wishing, wishing happens, but this is not about me. I want to, I want to talk about, (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk about something you've said recently. You said this, you said, there's never been a better time to be a therapist. And then you listed these four reasons. Demand is up clearly. Stigma is down, which is fabulous. And, and just to make a sub point there, it's not just the stigma of mental health or mental illness. Uh, but it's the stigma of treatments that is reducing as well. And that's something to celebrate. Then you said software like herd streamlines workflows. And yeah, I've got friends and relatives and colleagues who are uh, therapists and, and counselors and providers. And they're, oh man, they, they would benefit so much from uh, the lack of wrangling with insurance companies and doing their taxes and doing their accounting. And then you said this last thing, which is interesting also, social media enables passive income. So for the, for the, you know, the practitioners out there, the therapists out there, talk a little bit about that. How can they actually uh, drive some passive income through social media? What are some options or success stories you see out there? Definitely. I talk to therapists all the time who ask me if they need to be on social media. And my response to that question is no. I know plenty of therapists who have full practices and wait lists who are not on social media. You know, they, <laughs> they're not on Instagram, they're not on LinkedIn, and they've just filled their practice through having a really strong referral network. Maybe they have great SEO and, you know, they have a great website. Um, and I think building an audience on social media as a therapist creates opportunity to, to generate income. I, you know, I know therapists who, um, work with brands as someone who runs marketing for a brand that has therapist customers. We work with therapists on social media as influencer partners, Mm -hmm. and I'm happy (laughs) to, to pay therapists to, you know, to partner with them and create content about herd. And, you know, that's just, kind of one idea, right? I also know therapists who have built audiences on social media that sell info products. And so they've developed 
you know, worksheets and templates and downloadables and posters and like all of those, you know, types of resources that they sell. Um, and that for them is, is passive. You know, they just put the link in their bio and people just go on and, and buy that over time. Uh, I know therapists who sell online courses. I know, you know, it's a pre-recorded program is something, you know, you can create and put up and that's really passive. I think that there's probably a, like a overestimation of what passive income means because it's actually a lot of work <laughs> to create yeah. passive yeah. income. Right. Um, and you know, there's also, I, I know therapists who do like masterminds and mm -hmm. group coaching program, and there's just like a ton of opportunity, um, you know, for mental health professionals who are interested in generating income outside of one-on-one -on -one therapy, because, you know, the reality is that one-on-one -on -one therapy isn't scalable. Like there's two ways to make more money doing one-on-one -on -one therapy. It's seeing more clients or charging more and raising your rates. And so mm -hmm. if you want to generate more income without doing one of those two things, um, you know, there's, there's other opportunities to do so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can make more money and, or make more impact, you know, versus the, the one-to-one -one 50 minute session, which you can't, you can't clone yourself. You can't scale yourself that way necessarily. It's wonderful work. It's, it's impacted my life tremendously. So, um, but you know, there's, it's a fascinating time to think creatively, <clears throat> excuse me, as, as private equity has found mental health and behavioral health and addiction treatment and, and then the technology sector has found, um, uh, you know, opportunities for innovation that could potentially provide benefit and, um, and let's put a pin in that and come back to it. And so there are so many opportunities to think creatively and it's not, it's not bad to say, well, as, as much as I love doing what I'm doing, there are bigger ways to make impact that fit me. And that's not for everybody, but for some people. And so, yeah, I mean, I agree. Like the, the passive income idea, you know, I've thought about a mastermind course around helping creative agencies speak the language of mental health uh, from a communications and marketing standpoint, or vice versa, have some kind of certification for mental health professionals that could help them do the blocking and tackling of marketing. Uh, and it does feel like it would take a lot of work, not that it's not worth it, but it's not just uh, sitting back with your hands above your heads and uh, just kind of waiting for waiting for things to happen. Um, but let's get back to the tech component because you're you're on the tech side. And uh, one of the things, one of the recurring themes I hear in your messaging is the importance of inviting uh, the, the mental health professional to the table in the tech uh, innovation R&D space and ongoing in companies. Um, what's your what's your passion about that? What's the the root um, the root driver of that for you in terms of pitfalls and opportunities? I've spent my entire career working with mental health professionals. You know, I spent the first decade at the Gottman Institute where we trained therapists. And when I left the Gottman Institute to, you know, start my own business, I wanted to kind of help therapists in private practice with, with marketing. And I just got really like fired up and passionate about helping therapists to be business owners and entrepreneurs, because 
I saw such a gap in, in the education and training that they receive. Mm -hmm. Like they therapists spend, you know, two to four years in graduate school, depending on their program, um, sometimes longer and they learn clinical skills and then they graduate and they've received like no business training. And so, um, like I love helping therapists kind of think about the, the business side of their practice. Mm. Um, and another thing that I was seeing at the time, so this was kind of 2019, 2020 was right at the beginning of the pandemic. There was a lot of attention on mental health and, uh, a lot of people were talking about mental health. Mental health was really kind of taking a hit because of the pandemic. Um, and so what that did is it created like a lot of demand, right. For mental health services, because people were really struggling. I think yeah. the other thing that happened was because of the pandemic, people were no longer able to go see a therapist in person. And prior to the pandemic, therapists were offering telehealth and online therapy, but it wasn't really widely used. Like most yeah. people were still going in person, mm -hmm. but because of COVID people were forced and therapists were even forced to start offering telehealth and online therapy. And it really like opened therapy up. Um, it also opened therapy up to technology and technology companies. And so, as you mentioned, there was a lot of venture capital interest at the time, like billions of dollars being invested into these mental health tech companies, you know, with the goal of kind of scaling therapy and mental health. But what I was seeing was that therapists were not being given a seat at the table in those organizations. Um, I think there was a lot of irresponsible things that were being done. And a lot of these companies um, were not paying therapists very well. Like, I just think therapists were sort of kind of left out of, of a lot of that. And so, um, you know, that's something that I try to advocate for now is really kind of involving the mental health professionals within these, these organizations. And so, you know, at Herd, we're not delivering therapy or mental health services. We're more focused on the back office, as you mentioned, um, you know, but therapists are very involved in mm. everything that we do. We have therapists on our sales team. We involve therapists in our kind of product road mapping. We're constantly getting feedback from therapists and doing focus groups and customer interviews. And, you know, it's really important that we stay really close to, to our customer, uh, which, which are therapists and, you know, make sure that we understand kind of what their what their needs are for, for their business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. To me, that feels like the best of both worlds where you have the expertise that can drill down and in a blink of an eye, share the nuance with you that may help inform a product and maybe keep it on an, a, an ethical path or a, you know, there's just so much to think about when it comes to caring for patient privacy and, um, and then caring for the therapist themselves and, you know, somebody who has walked and talked to that, walked that path. Um, and then combine that with, yes, the search for efficiencies of scale 
and technology and innovation that can, you know, you know, provide some sort of solution. Um, and to have that tension actually is probably the healthiest place. You know, if it's, if that pendulum is swung all the way to the, the one-to-one -one therapist, then, uh, you know, not to be crass, but we, we've seen this in other technologies where, you know, we had the horse drawn carriage and then we have the car and, you know, uh, there's that quote, whether it's true or not about, uh, let's see, what is it? Like you ask somebody what they want and they just say faster horses, but it's like, no, actually we're, we're totally transforming things or the Gutenberg press, you know, is another one. Um, you know, there's, there's, there is opportunities to advance through technology and it's not, it's not good or bad, but it is also maybe, Hey, let's, let's make sure it's dead first. Let's make sure it's not just the shiny technorati, uh, you know, hype of technology. And once that settles down and once the froth, uh, sort of subsides, then maybe that's when there's the real opportunity to see how can we leverage this technology, uh, responsibly and, um, in a way that doesn't snap things as, as we go along. That's my optimistic, uh, a cautiously skeptic, optimistic approach to it. Yeah. I think the, the car metaphor is, is really interesting because, you know, I think that the technology community looked at what Uber was able to do by, you know, disrupting the taxi industry by, know developing a platform that connects drivers with riders right yeah um for like better or for worse and apply that model to mental health like what if we created a platform where you know we could seamlessly and easily connect therapists with people who are seeking a therapist because the reality is that it's really hard right to like to find a therapist therapists are really expensive like there's all of these barriers um and like personally, I don't believe that that's the right model for mental health care. I think that, you know, it promotes therapy that is kind of like a sort of quick fix. It's always accessible. And if we think about, you know, the, the nature of, of therapy and, and mental health is that it's really kind of a, it's an investment, you know, that's uh, dependent on, you know, in the therapy world, we talk about the, the therapeutic alliance, like the relationship between the client and, and the therapist is something that's built over time. And that's, yeah. um, you know, I don't believe it's something that you can, you know, quickly, you know, create through an app. Right. And so I think it requires us to take a step back and think about like, is this really the right business model? And should we be leveraging technology in this way? Should we even be trying to scale therapy? Like, what does that mean? Right? <laughs> I think there's an opportunity to leverage technology to, you know, help people uh, access resources, be more mentally, you know, healthy um, and educated. But I think, again, going back to getting kind of mental health professionals and therapists involved in that process, um, because for for the most part, they've been left out of those kinds of decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah. The, and, and from an access standpoint, yeah, part of it is the distribution of, uh, you know, therapists, you, you look at one state or one County and it's very different, you know? So 
you know, mental health care is different than what we're doing here on the same side of that or the opposite side of that coin, you know, I've gotten so much value from talking with you over the years. And some of that was in person and, and this hour has been tremendously valuable for me. I mean, ideas that I can go actionable ideas and take away and, and improve my social approach and my email approach and, um, get better about distribution for the podcast and any number of things. And that's business health. Um, but you're right. It's a different animal. Um, but we are able to connect in new and different ways rather than 20 years ago, it would be, well, Michael, come out to my radio show and sit in my office, you know, or have a phone call conversation. And so, yeah, it, it's tentatively exciting about the progress of things, but, um, but also, um, sort of to the, the Hippocratic oath, you know, sort of idea for mental health care. It's like, let's make sure we know what the, the downside risk is because it's also potentially logarithmically bad, not just kind of bad, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like there's this, you know, idea in, in tech and, uh, I don't remember exactly where it came from. If it's Zuckerberg or someone else that, you know, this idea of move fast and break things, right? Like, um, yeah, it might even be, I think it might be from like a VC, one of the popular mm. venture capital firms, but regardless, like there's this idea of like tech, you just need to like move fast. And if you break things, that's okay. Cause you'll pivot and you'll, you know, iterate. Um, and that's fine if you're building a calendar app, right? Like <laughs> if you break something, the worst thing that happens is someone doesn't get a notification about their meeting. You know what mm. I mean? Mm -hmm. um, but if you're moving fast and breaking things on mental health, like you could really cause real harm. And I think that's something that people need to take seriously. And there's like an ethical kind of obligation there that if you're building technology, if you're building software and, and mental health, that you're not harming people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a bending idea and there's a breaking idea. Um, then my daughter watches some kind of show cartoon on PBS, I think. And there's this song, like you can't untoast the toast, you know, like you can't, you, you can bend things. And some things are, are, you know, not just robust, but anti-fragile and they benefit from shock to the system. There is this idea and there's this idea that plays out in humans. Like we tear our muscles to make them stronger and, and we fast, you know, we do all sorts of things that provide shock to the system. Um, and it makes us better over time. But then you get to the point where you break things and you can't necessarily mend them back together. And are we, you know, are we increasing flexibility with our models or are we shattering things? And oftentimes things that are smooth, like glass, you know, or my coffee mug, pretty smooth, you drop that and it shatters rather than something that has some rough edges, you know, a, a piece of steel or something, you know, and, and you drop that and it's at least, at least it's robust, at least it's, you know, um, it, it, not adverse to some impact. So I don't know how that translates into humanity and dealing with people's minds, except to say that we, there are no experts actually. I think you could, you could make a claim and that's not my claim. That's from the book healing by Dr. Thomas Insel, who, you know, he's done the work and there's so much we don't know about even the biological wrinkles in our brain and what's connecting what to where 
and then the and then the social impact and you know and then yeah sure you know the psychotherapy and, and psychoanalysis and and all of that it's it's so complex that our best position is humility you know while we move forward absolutely and i, I think when it comes to you know not causing harm with technology to me it comes back to you know involving therapists in in the process right because yeah. you know as someone myself who is not a therapist like i just don't know what i don't know yeah. when it comes to mental health right like when it comes to creating an exercise or an activity in an app like something that could be triggering for people or a certain language that could be problematic like mm. i just wouldn't know right and I, I remember having a conversation with John Gottman when I was at the Gottman Institute, we were talking about creating content and creating, you know, exercises for couples. And what, what he told me was that in his research on relationships, what he found was that if a couple was in the negative perspective in their relationship and you gave them an activity to do together, say, you know, share 10 things that you love about your partner, <laughs> they're going to like completely sabotage the activity, right? And yeah. turn it into 10 things that they like that annoy each other about their, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, you have to know that going in, like the context is super important. Um, and if, you know, in that example, if, if someone is like not in a good place and then you ask them to do something, it could actually make the situation worse. Mm -hmm. And so being aware of those things when you're, you know, building, whether it's content or, you know, software, or, you know, apps within mental health, that you're just like aware of that context. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. 10 ways I'm going to throw shade at my partner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, we're coming up on an hour, so we're going to wrap, but one, one last question, um, which is tell me something that you are reading or listening to could be a, a music album. It could be a book, a podcast, um, something that has your attention lately and that you think, uh, other people out there in the world, uh, should check out. Great question. Um, completely unrelated to, you know, to mental health, but I think someone who does a really amazing job with their content, um, is a guy named Lenny. And he writes a sub substack, substack, excuse me, called Len Lenny's newsletter. And it's all about like product and growth, um, specifically for, for tech companies. And I just like, I love what he does. He, he started with a newsletter. Now he has a podcast, uh, going back to what we talked about. I think he does a great job repurposing. Um, he has people write guest posts for his newsletter and does interviews. And I just think from a content perspective, like. He's doing really great, great work. And I get a lot of, a lot of inspiration from him. He, he's on LinkedIn. So I would connect with him if you, if you haven't, he's also a angel investor in herd. Oh, fabulous. Okay. I don't know about Lenny or Lenny's newsletter. So thanks for sharing yeah, that. Go check that out. Yeah, I will. I'll include that link in the, uh, as we promote this and, uh, Michael, I get a lot of inspiration from you and I appreciate your perspective and thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm bummed. I won't be able to make the conference this year, but you know, hopefully you'll have me back next year. Yeah, definitely. We'll, we'll have you back if you, uh, if, if you're up for that, definitely.
Yeah, if I make it there. <laughs> yeah. Right, <thank> <laughs> yeah, maybe get in a day early. We'll go hang out yeah. in, in Nashville or something. Yeah. yeah. All right. Have a good one, Michael. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, you too.